Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Go one and call the Jew to the court. Make room. We'll stand before our face. He has come, my lord. Shylock, the world thinks, and I think so too, that you but leave this fashion of your malice to the last hour of the act. And then it is thought you'll show your mercy and remorse, more strange than is your strange apparent cruelty. What say you, Joe? We all expect a gentle answer. Hello, and welcome to the plays, the thing, Act Four of Merchant of Venice. My name is Tim McIntosh, and I am joined by I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And we're so glad that you joined us for the penultimate act of uh, Merchant of Venice, the famous courtroom scene. And we we just heard the audio from the judge inviting Shylock forward to defend himself and his desire to finally exact revenge on Antonio, to exact a pound of flesh. And this is, um, it's act four, you guys, for me, this feels like the final act of the play. We do have one more play left in keeping with Shakespeare's tradition of five act plays, but act five only has one scene. Act four is the thrilling conclusion of the play. Um, hey, it's really nice to be back on the air with you guys. Are you excited to um, venture into the court with Portia and... Bassanio and Shylock and Antonio, are you guys ready for this? So ready. Yes, this is a great scene. A Shakespeare a classic. Scene. It is a Shakespeare classic. Um, I noticed something in keeping with uh, the, the, the 
heavy textual references to the Bible in this play. Uh, Sarah Jane, I, I noticed something early in the, in the court scene, kind of in keeping with the heavy biblical references in this play, there's another biblical reference. And Shylock refers to the young doctor of laws, who we all know is Portia disguised as a lawyer. Um, Shylock refers to her as a Daniel. And I, so I feel like I know the Bible fairly well, right? I know who Daniel is, Daniel in the lion's den, part of the Babylonian captivity. But when Shylock refers to Daniel, it refers to Portia the lawyer as a young Daniel, I didn't follow that reference. Can you help us at all? Why does he call her that? So how well do you know the Apocrypha, Tim? Oh, I don't know the Apocrypha very well. I'm, I'm a, tr- a slim Bibled Protestant by training mm. and by uh, background. So am I. But I, I have read a bit about this reference because like you, I had questions about what Shylock meant. And we need to go to the book of Susanna. Okay. And if anyone in the audience knew the Apocrypha, then this kind of would be an obvious reference to the book of Susanna because Daniel in the book of Susanna confounds her accusers and upholds the justice of the law. So Shylock is calling for um, a figure who's going to uphold justice and law because that's what he wants. He says, I stand for judgment, I stand for law in the Uh scene. But of course, there's also another angle to this. And the name Daniel does actually as well refer to Daniel the the prophet who worked for Nebuchadnezzar, um, because the subtle hint is that Portia is called Balthazar, isn't she, as this uh-huh, right. judge, which echoes the name that Daniel was given, Balthazar. Um, mm. So it's not that's not really an accident, is it, that there's such a close echo between right. those two names? And in um, Elizabethan Bibles the name Daniel was glossed as meaning the judgment of God. So there's a real irony to the name Daniel when Gratiano then starts using it against Shylock and saying, ah, yes, Um, because Shylock calls for judgment and judgment is what he gets, but not in the way that he thinks he will. Yeah. So um, it's a a really interesting... It's a really interesting um, yeah. little joke. Again, another joke by Shakespeare. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, do you guys think... So, actually, before we go too deep into the play, hi, do you mind giving us a little overview of um, what happens in Act 4? There's only two scenes, but there's a lot of kind of uh, legal angling in this, yeah. in this act. Can you give us a little overview of what, what happens? Sure. I, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, so Act 4 opens with Antonio in court being held accountable for failing to pay his debt to Shylock. Uh, the Duke, who's in charge, he begs him to have mercy uh, on Antonio and Shylock refuses. Uh, Bassanio even offers to pay uh, Antonio's debt 
um, now he's a rich man because he is married to Portia, which answers the question of why there's a wedding um, in, in the middle of the play instead of at the end. Um, so now he has access to Portia's gold. And so now he can pay off his friend's debt. Uh, and he even offers to double it in scene one. But Shylock he doesn't want that. He refuses. He demands the letter of the law. He demands his pound of flesh. Uh, and right at this fraught moment, then a young doctor or lawyer uh, enters the courtroom and offers to help resolve the conflict, uh, unbeknownst to the participants there, but totally beknownst to us as the audience, the lawyer is Portia in disguise. Um, and she, as a matter of fact, upholds Shylock's claim to his pound of flesh, um, and he uh, she awards it to him. But after a little bit of maneuvering, there's a lot of dialogue at this point, kind of building up to this dramatic moment. But in upholding uh, the claim to the pound of flesh, she says that Shylock cannot take any drop of blood because it's not in the bond. It's not word for word laid out in the bond. So he could take the flesh, but not the blood. And then of course, Shylock cannot do that. And so he has to forfeit his claim, uh, in which case there's a lot of legal maneuvering that really is good dramatic meat uh, here. And uh, she tells him then because he has conspired against a citizen uh, Venice, then um, in order to kill him. Um, then he now has forfeit of his entire fortune, at which case, and she demands it from him, uh, in which case then, uh, is it the Duke or Antonio says that, no, it's Antonio. He says that he doesn't want all of it. He can keep mm. half of it. And then the, uh, he takes half of it as forfeiture to the state. But then the other half has to go to Jessica, his daughter, who he has cut off and refused to support after her marriage to a Christian man. Um, and then, and also Antonio demands that Shylock has to convert to Christianity. And Shylock is backed into a corner and he agrees to everything. Um, and is taken away he leaves the courtroom and then a really interesting scene then there's a scene change at this point that's yes. all of uh, act four scene one um and then after that um Portia is still in disguise and she asks Bassanio as a reward for her services to give her his wedding ring and Bassanio refuses to do it until Antonio asks him to and um and then Bassanio does give it to Portia and then that's the end yes. of the scene. Um so we don't know what's gonna happen with that. I, I want to come back to the ring mm. question at the end of the podcast, but for now, let's talk about um what let's talk about this trial. It it seems to me like we've seen Antonio and Shylock kind of function as mirrors of each other in some way and there's even a little text portia when she's disguised as the doctor enters she said which is the merchant here and which is the jew although so, so that adds to kind of this sense that these two are in some ways though diametrically opposed they're twins so that line, Sarah Jane, you, you don't you think something else is going on with that line when Portia enters and says, which is the merchant here and which is the Jew? It's not about um them looking like doubles. Something else is happening. Is that right? 
I think so. We've heard that Bellario can't make it. This strange um, stand-in has turned up for this court scene. And um, the characters on stage obviously don't know the dramatic irony and should be thinking, who is this judge? Is this mm. judge going to be... Sorry, this this lawyer. Is this lawyer going to be any good? And Portia, I think, jokingly makes a deliberate false start. So she says, I am informed thoroughly of the case. And then she says, which is the merchant and which is the Jew? <laughs> now, right. I think she's she's tricking Shylock a bit here. She's lulling him into a false sense of security because it would be obvious from their costumes that Shylock in his gabardine coat is the Jew. And also we think, or I think in, in the, an original production, he would have looked like a caricature Mm. Um, in some ways. So it's, it's hilarious. I think it's a, a hilarious line, but it is interesting that it does play on that um, ambiguity that we discussed before about the title, that it was yes, the Jew of Venice right. and it's the Merchant of Venice. Um, but yeah, I think it's a joke. Because these two characters, Antonio, the Merchant of Venice and Shylock, the lender, are in my nomenclature, twinned, they're kind of mirrors of each other. Are they in the courtroom scene to learn the same lesson? Oh, it's a great question. And I've heard it argued, yes, but I read it very differently this time because of Sarah Jane's uh, interpretation of the play and particularly this scene with Portia functioning as the Holy Spirit um, and Antonio functioning as the intermediary, uh, the the mediator between the law, the letter of the law, uh, as a Christ-like figure, and and I think that the the scene just really works, and it resolves, I think, a lot of loose strands that are in this particular scene. It's a, it's a very powerful scene. Of course, it has the quality of mercy is not strained. Speech has all this like, dramatic tension. And um, it's, uh, Sergey and I never thought of that line as being a joke, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear there's some jokes in this scene because <laughs> it's a serious scene. Like there's so much weight on this scene. Um, and so I, I think that, it works better to think of it in terms of Antonio being this Christ-like figure who doesn't necessarily have to learn lessons. He just has to be willing to die for his friend. Sarah Jane, can you can you walk us through a uh, a little defense of Antonio as a Christ figure? Because I am open to that. I'm struggling to see it though. I'm not sure that it's it's there. I'm a little bit more inclined to think, well, it doesn't matter what I'm more inclined to think. Yes, Can it you- does. Of course it matters. That's well, what I, this I, is I just- for. So you should defend that. That's what you should do. But let's hear from Sarah Jane first. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's, as Heidi said, Antonio's there and he's been willing to die for his friend from the outset. Um, I do agree with you in that he's a, he's a lot more sort of pathetic and in need of um, attention and sympathy than Christ was. That Antonio um, is a little bit, perhaps keen to impress that what he's doing is good. So yeah, I'm interested to hear your defense of that. It's a little bit hard for me to justify him as a 
Christ figure because what what we learn about him in is it one three one four when Shylock just recounts the things that Antonio has done to him publicly, spat at him, called him names, and so I just see him as a much more sort of um, a figure with great faults who is very loyal to his friend who is willing to like um, suffer greatly for his friend, maybe even the point of death. But I, I find it hard to kind of reconcile his earlier behavior to Shylock that happens off stage with the notion that he's a Christ figure. I see. I understand now. I see. I didn't have um, a problem with that so much as um, I thought that was quite analogous to Christ in the way that Christ chastised the Pharisees, flipped mm. the tables in the temple, um, and was very sort of direct and confrontational at certain times with right. the Pharisees. Um, but obviously at other times he did just slip away and come yeah. back later. Um, I think we don't have to push the parallel too far. I don't mm. think Shakespeare is presenting Antonio as a perfect character. And I don't think Shakespeare would would be so foolish as to try and, and do that. I think yeah. the idea is he yeah. points to Christ in this overall structure of the play. Um, what I think is really interesting here about the presentations of Christians in this scene, yeah. or Gentiles, if you want to say that, is that Shakespeare shows that they're not, they're not all good. Mm. So Antonio has his faults, but Gratiano in the scene, we, I mean, we were just talking about mercy and whether the characters learned mercy. Gratiano has learned nothing. He's witnessed the entire courtroom scene, has experienced Antonio handing out mercy. And at the end, Graciano is still calling for revenge and said, I wouldn't have done that. I would have called for 10 men to hang you at the gallows. So yeah. I like the way that Shakespeare doesn't give us kind of this black, white, simplistic uh, presentation of Christians are good, Jews are bad. That isn't at all what is going on here. Yeah. I was particularly struck in... Uh, in reading the play this time, uh, uh, in the way that Antonio and um, and Shylock handle their job and the issue of usury so differently and lending, uh, again, bonds are such a big deal in the play. Um, and there's all kinds of different kinds of bonds uh, in relationships. And we've talked a lot about that over the last few weeks. Um, but I think that the way that they uh, handle bonds is uh, and debts that are owed to them does support the idea of the contrast between the uh, the way that Jewishness is presented in this play and the way that mercy and is connected to Christianity within the play. Uh, that Shylock demands interest and um, and Antonio doesn't, and so I think that that contrast between those two does support the idea that while doubles, they are intended to be opposites and to explore the embedded theme of justice and mercy, law and grace within the play. Speaking of that, Heidi, we, we get to the kind of um, ultimate judgment of the court and Antonio is asked you know, does he want uh, Shylock to give up his money? And he mm. gives a gracious answer. But there's another part of it that I wonder what you two think. 
he demands that Shylock become a Christian as part of his judgment. Mm-hmm. What do you guys make of that? What do you do with that? Well, it's 2020. Th- what do you do with that? Right. So, and I, that's exactly what I was about to say. The answer to that in 2020 is completely mm-hmm. different to the answer of that in, is it 1599? I get all of his plays. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there, there are two different answers to that question. A forced conversion is an unthinkable thing in 2020. And rightly so, I think, because I'm a modern woman. I'm modern enough to find that repugnant. Um, but in 1599, that was a kindness, right? Mm. That's how this man's going to get to heaven. Otherwise he can't. So I, and I think that that answers the question even of Antonio's, uh, obvious contempt for Jews. That was, it was a cultural contempt that he was reflecting. Shakespeare doesn't actually have all of the answers to human kindness. And so his particular, uh, his, his particular flawed thinking is going to show up in in the play. And they were a culture that looked down on Jews and didn't understand Jews and absolutely believed that Christianity was not only the only way to heaven, but to be a forced convert was a great kindness to people. Mm. So this is, I think, intended within the play, although we completely reject this now, I think it is intended in the play to be a redemptive moment. That's exactly right. It's a redemptive moment. It's not anti-Semitic revenge. It simply has to be viewed in the context of the symbolic action of the play, which is that Shylock in the court scene has experienced that um, man is not justified by the works of the law. And so it then has to be demonstrated in the action of the play that um, man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ and therefore he must convert. And I honestly, I think that's, it's, it's about a completeness of symbolic action. Um, and in that sense, it doesn't matter if it's 2020 or um, Elizabethan England. But um, what's interesting in, in a historical context is that the punishment, the, the monetary punishment that the laws of Venice impose on Shylock are, precisely correct they are the laws that um that were imposed on jewish converts to christianity throughout most of europe and england in the middle ages so shakespeare Mm. is is also using historical factual details as well i I have a question i'm a little bit reluctant to ask this because it's a little bit of a deep historical dive when shylock converts to christianity is he afforded any additional rights within that society and within this kind of like imaginary world, imaginary historical world. Do either of you know that? Or is it more that's Any other rights? That, yes. Would he, would, are, are there rights that well, he would not have had as a Jew that he would now accrue by converting to Christianity? I would assume yes, but I don't know the answer specifically yeah. to that question. I mean, I know that in England, Jewishness was outlawed. 
at mm. the time. Uh, and so that mm. the Elizabethan audience would have had that in their minds, uh, even though I know that the play is set in Venice, it's in the title, right? But but still, they're going to be viewing it through their own cultural context. And so in a sense, he's they're taking care, as, as Sarah Jane points out, it's not just about religion. It's also taking care of a cultural problem, uh, which is now he doesn't have to be an outcast. Now he can be a citizen. Now he can enter into the life of the community uh, as a Christian and not to have to wear the gabardine and not have to be known as a Jew. Uh, so it is within the context of the play, this is a, a welcome home for this particular character that he is then rejecting the same way, say, Malvolio does in Twelfth Night, when he mm-hmm. is offered a chance to be redeemed and he instead, you know, shakes his fists and scorns them and runs out, um, rejecting the idea and remains an outcast. And so he he takes the deal, right? That's what Shylock does. He takes the deal. But his heart, it's very clear, is still hardened. Most modern productions make this a very mournful moment mm. instead of an angry one. And I think that that probably works for the pathos of the play. Uh, but it, I, I, I don't know if it works for what that particular moment is intended to, yeah. um, and which I, I hold pretty loosely when it comes to Shakespeare anyway. So <laughs> that's okay with me. But, um, but I do think that Sarah Jane's right. This is intended to be a fully redemptive opportunity for Shylock. Mm. And it's really interesting when we look at what Shylock says after he's been told he must convert. He doesn't argue back. He doesn't say, Mm -hmm. is it in the law? Am I bound to this? He says, I am content. And I'd be really interested to see how different directors play that. Because in one sense, the word content means complete. Mm. So he is then a completed Jew, which is, you know, the conversion of the right. Jews. So I think there's that meaning of the word. Would he play it jokingly? Would he just sort of do like a to camera and sort of shrug and say, I'm content. That's right. it. I'm right. lost. I'm out of here. Um, or, or as Heidi said, it, it's often played as being very, very sad that he's had his identity robbed, that he has no recourse to justice. And an, another really good question here is, does Shylock get a fair trial? Mm. Does he really? So there is a lot going on here. And I think my reading, which I'm, I'm really convinced by, is that Shylock has to be shown that the, the law kind of teaches him that he can't be justified by the law and his works under the law that he must be justified by Christ and therefore that has to be completed in the action of the play. And he stands in that sense for the entire of the um, Jewish race. Sarah Jane, does Shylock get a fair trial? Well, do you think so? Because I was thinking about this and it does seem very correct and fair and balanced, but the problem is Portia isn't really a lawyer. Mm. She's an actor and she's pretending to be someone that she's not. Is that allowed in a court of law? I mean, it's a play, so it's fine, but Shakespeare doesn't make it easy for us to leave this play with all our questions answered. Right. I think nothing about this play is easy. There's so many, every time I read it, I, I find it a bit choppy. I find it doesn't cohere properly with all the different pieces. At least for me, it doesn't feel harmonious. But when you dig into these themes, it's 
it's clear, I think, what Shakespeare's doing with the contrast and the transactional nature of the of the play and all these different pieces, the, the disparate pieces do fit together, but it doesn't feel like it as the audience sometimes. And then those particular issues that get so complicated, um, exactly what you said about Portia, uh, you know, and then on the other hand, again, it's a comedy. And so it's, Portia's this character, this boundary crossing character, Northrop Frye calls them, the, the characters who can move between worlds. Um, looking, You're looking for women dressed as men, which uh, is really common in Shakespeare. Um, or say King, or Henry V uh, dressing up as a commoner and going amongst his men. Um, but you're looking for these characters that can cross the rigid hierarchical lines of Elizabethan England and create redemption through that boundary crossing itself. Boundaries that nobody in their right mind within the society would cross. Um, and But Shakespeare's characters do that. And it's funny, but it's also, I think, always intended to be harmonious and redemptive and to bring, to, to set things right uh, within the play. Uh, but Again, as you just pointed out, in this particular play, Shakespeare kind of turns it on its head, uh, that that um, that trope on its head, because you then have a man who is judged by the law by someone who isn't actually authorized to do such a thing. And mm-hmm. it's clear that it was not, it is clear that Shylock was set up. Yeah, and there's so much incongruity in this scene as you say, yes. that's very difficult to harmonise. And, and maybe that's a challenge that Shakespeare sets for himself. You know, how do I make this as awkward as possible and then bring about right. an ending? Um, and, you know, we go from Shylock sharpening his knife on his shoe and a, a sort of silly joke on the pun of soul and soul. soul. And, soul. Uh-huh. and then on the other hand, you've got this really heavyweight covenantal image of the heart of stone of Shylock, which is mentioned mm-hmm. several times, And then this kind of sick joke that he's going to cut himself a heart of flesh out of a Christian with his knife that he sharpened on his shoe. And somehow Shakespeare manages to get this to cohere. But we do, we have almost like whimsical, silly comedy set alongside pretty heavyweight theology and imagery. But it it does kind of work. I mean, Mm yeah. Yeah. I, I do laugh a lot in this scene. So it, mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear you say that it's, you know, quite serious. I, I find sometimes that there's a sort of ludicrous quality to it, especially when she goes, ha ha, I tarry a little, stay a while, as if she's just <laughs> thought of it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Right. I right. Like right. To see that more. I'm going to try to see that more. He, it is, um, I'm sure that there's a lot more comedy here than I and I'm paying attention to because I'm always kind of, and that's the thing about being a literary kind of person. Sometimes you get stuck in the weeds, right? So that happens to me, I think, in this scene. And the comedy is pretty dark. It's really dark. And, and as you say, reading it, it's, it's much harder to see. And watching it on the stage probably brings out some of these things mm. a bit more. Um, so do, what did you think? Fair trial. Heidi kind of thinks not exactly. What about you, Tim? I think, uh, according to, how do I say this? I think that Portia smudges sort of some of the legal details, some of the kind of maybe like more rigid legal details. But I think that she, 
I think that she gives a fair or she exacts a fair verdict, I guess is the best way to say it. Like um, in the American court system, because it's so legally rigid that you could never have a non you know, registered with the bar lawyer coming in and defending you. And so the case would be thrown out. Maybe that's the case in 1600 in, you know, a a Venice court also, a Venetian court also. But I think like the big picture, the actual content, the actual question that's at stake. Yeah. I think that she gets a good verdict. I like the verdict that she gets. I think it's, I think it's fair. Well, and isn't the whole point of this scene that the letter of the law is not the measure of justice? Right, right. And that is, uh, to that end, then she's the perfect boundary-crossing character to be able to bring the thing to a true harmony. Um, because it's not about who's there and who has the title and who who knows the law. It really is about a heart of of justice and mercy, which are not opposites, but harmonized features that bring together this play. Which is a perfect opportunity to hear Portia's famous speech from Act 4, Scene 1, about the quality of mercy. Uh, Let's hear that now. Then must the Jew be merciful. On what compulsion must I? Tell me that. The quality of mercy is not strained. Droppeth is the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mighty. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy, he's above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show like his gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be your plea, Consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. None of us should see salvation, says Portia. Did we just hear the the message of the play, you guys? Yeah, I think that in creating a play that has the issue of transaction and bond at its core, uh, then that raises the question of justice and mercy and law and grace. And I do think that the message of the play is that justice and mercy, law and grace are not opposites. They, mm. uh, they can be harmonized through learning to love. I mm. think that that's the, um, that's what the play keeps coming back to with all of its multiple threads and complex relationships. That's kind of the arriving point, I think, of the yeah. play. Yeah. Sarah Jane? Yeah, absolutely. And that she, just after that word salvation, the next bit of the speech, she says, we do pray for mercy. And that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. And I think she's referring to the Lord's Prayer, which is 
forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And mm. the the idea of mercy is that mercy is granted to the merciful. Mm. So there is a lesson about mercy, as we were saying before, to, to everyone in this scene, to the audience, to the characters. And Portia, is, it's so interesting here because she stands in a position of authority and power and she's given us an image of a throned monarch, which is an image of authority, which we don't necessarily associate with mercy. And yet she says, this is a picture of mercy. Yes. Mercy is above this septed sway. So as Heidi was saying, she's showing that there is authority and power and judgment and mercy is above it. And it's both together. So... It's such yeah, Shakespeare a, lays it on thick here, doesn't he? And also the yeah. speech has kind of come out of nowhere because she's been joking, sort of saying, uh, pretending to be incompetent, you know, um, yes, I know about the case. Who's the Jew? Who's who's the uh, right, right. merchant? And then she says, um, well, you know, you must be merciful. And the Jew's like, who are you? Why? And then she gives this speech and everyone really starts to listen. I think it's additionally powerful because, as Heidi said earlier, she she lets the suit that Shylock is bringing, she lets it play out the whole way until, you know, Antonio's being disrobed and we're about to see a bloodletting because this pound of flesh is going to be taken. Um, she lets it play out the whole way. And then when she throws on the brakes with this speech, it's really, it's arresting. It arrests the, for me, it arrests the whole play. Um, and it really does feel like this is the moment that we're supposed to walk away from the play remembering. And it, I, we have all been very clear that we're reluctant to have um, Shakespeare be like the teacher of lessons. He certainly does, but um, his, his plays are often so complex and his characters are so complex and the justice that is rendered is often so complex that I think we've all expressed some hesitation saying Shakespeare, the teacher of, you know, moral tales. Mm -hmm. But this seems like an exception to me. This seems like an exception. Like it seems like really Shylock, I mean, Shylock seems that uh, Shakespeare wants us to walk away remembering this speech. I think even more than three, one, because I am a Jew, mm-hmm. you know, that, that great Agreed. speech by Shylock. This one seems to me to really like be the forefront of his, of his ideas in Merchant of Venice. I was thinking a lot about the first line of the speech. The quality of mercy is not strained. And that word strained mm. perplexed me. Does it mean... It's not under tension. It's not pulled taut and thin. Or does it mean in the sense that it hasn't been put through a sieve and all the kind of thick and rich goodness taken out? Or is it both of those things? It just seemed like a strange word to choose to describe the quality of mercy. Strained, Mm -hmm. sieved, stretched. I don't know. Thin. When I read it, I read it as thinned you know, made, made weak and less palpable. But your point, your point, your, your, the question is a legitimate one, Sarah Jane. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. How do you how do you read that word, Heidi? Strained. I I tend to I don't know. I I'm so I am so bad at taking stands on Shakespeare. <laughs> both because you're because you're, yes. you're smart because <laughs> yeah. it's i mean even on like word meanings there's there's so many double meanings in shakespeare thematically and in vocabulary and culturally and spiritually there's just he's bottomless right like there's mm-hmm. so many layers of potential interpretation and meaning in any given line or moment in in shakespearean drama and and i think that this word is one case in which I, I'm like, yep, you're both right. And there's probably some other thing we're missing. Hey, before we um, put a bow on act four, let's talk about the ring scenes. So um, Portia plays a little trick on Bassanio. She tricks him into giving up this ring that she gave him. And what's going on there? Is she having fun with him? And also, by giving it up, does does Bassanio, is he communicating something about his feelings for Portia by giving up this ring that he received from her? What do you guys think? I'm I'm intrigued by the ring every time because the first time I read or saw this play, I had no idea what was going on with it um, and thought it was extraneous and distracting. Like I was like, whatever, this weird ring thing that's happening. But uh, the ring is another form of a bond. So uh, it's, it matters a lot. The ring has, rings always have a weight of meaning in marriage (laughs) throughout cultures. Um, I think that there's a lot going on with the ring, but my particular favorite interpretation of this is that it's a test from Portia for Bassanio's ultimate loyalty. She gives him the ring in a previous scene and says, don't give this away for it. I mean, do not part with this ring because it is symbolic of our love. Um, and he refuses to give it away to the lawyer, uh, to, to Portia, until Antonio asks him to do it. And the other significant relationship in the play before marriage to Bassanio was Antonio. So I think this is a test of his loyalty specifically related to Antonio. Will you choose me or will you choose him? And and the reason I think this is because of other play, other Shakespearean dramas and comedy, which uh, the transition of loyalty to uh, same-sex friends always has to be abandoned in favor of romantic love in marriage in other plays. You see it in Midsummer. You see it in Twelfth Night. You see it uh, in in any – yeah, any of his high comedies always has a very significant – uh, letting go of loyalty to the old way of me being one of the boys uh, and becoming then a husband um, in which my primary loyalty is then to my wife. And, and in a play about bonds and transactions and about the letter of the law, it makes sense that Shakespeare would put this into a ring, into a symbol, into a symbolic moment of transition in which Bassanio 
fails the test the first time. Right. But Portia playfully forgives him in Act 5, which we'll see, which I do find a bit of a head-scratcher. Um, so I think that, again, it's one of those things that Shakespeare's turning on its head and asking us to think about, uh, and it's more than than meets the eye here. Yeah. Sarah Jane, is it a head-scratcher for you, too? I think so, and it also... It takes us back to quite uh, another humorous moment in Act 14, 1, where, uh, as Heidi was saying, there is the conflict between loyalty to friend and loyalty to wife. The thing I'm never clear on is whether or not Bassanio and Portia are married at this point. I don't think they are, but maybe they... But there's an allusion to it in at the end of 3, in which it sounds like she kind of says, yep, we're husband and wife. And you're like, wait, did I miss the ceremony? Did I not get the invite? I, so I'm, I'm, it's a little bit ambiguous to me also. I think it hasn't happened yet. That he okay. wants to go, okay. he has to go and make this right first, resolve the plot with Antonio yeah. and Shylock, and then they're going to get married later. And the rings are sort of like a holding kind of device, a bond, as Heidi said. And right. in the middle of the courtroom scene, Antonio... Um, cries out to Bassanio and says, say how I loved you, speak me fair in death. And Bassanio is willing there to give up his life for his friend and says, but life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. And there is Portia saying, your wife would give you little thanks for that if she were here. (laughs) (laughs) And another really funny moment where Shylock then chimes in too and says, goodness me, these Christian husbands, I wouldn't want my daughter married to one of those. And so the infidelity of Bassanio is very much in question throughout this whole act. And Portia there is even alluding to the fact that she knows she set him this trial and that at the end of the scene, she grabs Narissa and says, okay, let's go and see how, how strongly he'll hold on to this. And um, he, he gives up the ring for Antonio. And in the next scene, he gets back the ring and Portia and Antonio all together. So the impression is that he has done the right thing. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Act five makes that really clear, I think, yeah. that, that he did do the right thing. But I don't know why still sometimes. Like I read it and I'm like, wait, why was that the right thing? <laughs> so, Maybe it's because they're not married yet. It, well, and that would make that that would make sense. I've never even considered that they weren't married yet because of the language in act three. But if you're right, I think that that does help Bassanio's case yeah yeah um you guys we've got one more act in which we can figure out this this little mystery maybe it'll make sense to us by the end of next podcast hey I I told both of you guys off the air and now I'll say it on the air I recorded a bonus episode that we're going to release to listeners after we record act five after we release Act Five, uh, I interviewed my friend and kind of my Shakespeare acting mentor, Judith Sparky Roberts. I interviewed her about the question of anti-Semitism in the play. Was Shakespeare anti-Semitic? Um, is the play anti-Semitic? Um, Sparky, as I affectionately call her, uh, is a really accomplished Shakespeare teacher. Uh, and she also has a Jewish background, and I really wanted to hear her weigh in on that question that we discuss so often in the first couple acts, the first couple of podcasts. So listeners, uh, be paying attention to that. 
you guys, hey, thanks so much. Um, I, I want to also remind listeners about how you can participate in the conversation. Uh, you can participate in the conversation online on Facebook through the Close Reads discussion group on Instagram and Twitter at Close Reads Pods and via email by writing to close reads podcasts at gmail.com. Don't forget about our email newsletter, which you can also sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Hey, you guys, this was wonderful. And I have a suggestion. Let's do it again next week. That sounds that great. All right. All right. Brilliant we'll idea. do that. All right, everyone, for um, Heidi White and for Sarah Jane Bentley, my name is Tim McIntosh. Thanks for listening to The Plays The Thing, and we wish you happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.